Exploring Mormon Thought features discussions about Mormon doctrine and theology that correlate with topics in the book series of the same name written by scholar and theologian Blake Osler. Find us online at exploringmormonthought.com and facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought. Welcome to Exploring Mormon Thought. Today we're starting chapter 3 of the second volume, and that is titled The Relation of Moral Obligation in God in LDS Thought. And we're only going to cover half of this chapter today, but the main theme of this chapter is trying to develop a theory of ethics. And most people have taken some sort of ethics class in Philosophy 101, and it's just relating to what are morals, where do they come from, and why would we be obligated to do them? And there's lots of theories on that. So, in today's episode, what we're going to do is actually address an argument against LDS thought by a person named Francis Beckwith. And, Dad, if you could explain who he is and then what this comes from. Like, it's from a publication, if you could just kind of explain the context and background of this argument in general. Yeah, this actually comes from the New Mormon Challenge, which was a book put together by evangelical scholars to essentially blunt the scholarly work that had been done in Mormonism regarding the historicity of the Book of Mormon and various philosophical arguments that had been made in the literature. To their credit, they saw the work that had been done as worthy of scholarly attention, respect, and in need of a response. At the time, Beckwith, his name is Francis Beckwith, I know him well, at least I did at the time, haven't spoken with him for years, but at the time that he made this argument, he was president of the Evangelical Theological Society, so he was a heavyweight, if you will. He's since converted to Catholicism, and I think that his, how do I say this, I think his fervor for these evangelical positions has somewhat waned. At least I don't see him pushing those as much. But he's an intelligent guy, has a background in philosophy. He also went to law school, didn't become a lawyer. He did that because he was interested in the legal issues related to abortion. And as far as I know, continues to be a professor of philosophy. He was at UNLV at one time. Uh, He was at Baylor at one time. I'm not sure where he is now. I'd have to look it up. But I like him. He's a good guy, and I've had numerous conversations with him. And so he wrote an article in this book. It's about a 500-page book, challenging various Mormon positions. And his argument here is that Mormonism has no sound basis for a moral theory. Before we get into like the actual part of the argument, if you could introduce kind of just the basic idea of what is the definition, I guess, of moral theory, and why is it something that should be important for religious people? Yeah, what we're looking at here are not ethical theories per se, but meta-ethics. That is, what is the grounding, the basis for believing that there are things like moral obligations? And anybody who's read C.S. Lewis and or Kant and or Aquinas know that there's this moral argument for the existence of God. But it's not merely an argument for the existence of God. It's also definitive of the absolutist view of God in that God is himself the basis of all moral obligations in the sense that they're grounded in him. And so what we're talking about is not a particular ethical theory, but meta-ethics. Meta-ethics has to do with what is the basis for believing that there are such things as ethical obligations, not what are our obligations, because those are two different questions. And so what he's doing is saying Mormonism cannot provide a basis for grounding 
ethical theories or the belief that there are moral obligations, whereas traditional Christianity has a very sound argument that moral obligation is grounded in God. Okay, well, yeah, that's a good launching point here. So just starting off in the chapter, you start out with a quote, and you, you basically say, Beckwith is not alone. Also, other people that are interested in this, named Richard and Joan Ostling, not Ostler, that's us, Ostling, someone else. All right. And they assert, traditional Christianity provides a theology of God being. Mormon theology has more in common with process theology. It is a theology of becoming. One difficulty is in satisfactorily tying a theology of becoming to an ethic of moral absolutes. Mormonism does not resolve the problem of how a philosophy of becoming can posit a moral philosophy of absolutes or normative ethics. If a finite God with limits who did not create the world out of nothing is off the hook on the question of being responsible for the existence of pain and evil, this leaves open another question. From where do we derive the principle of moral good? It is a difficult question if Mormonism favors the principle of an absolutist or normative ethic. With a finite God and a philosophy of progressive becoming, how does one introduce the idea of universals? How does one define moral goodness without the moral sovereignty of God? And that's the basic view of this argument to begin with, and then just one more quote, and then you can go into a little more. So, in response to that, you say, Such arguments are based on meta-ethics and not ethics proper. That is, such arguments are based on the theoretical underpinning of moral obligation. What is the source and explanation of the fact that we have objective moral obligations? They are not based on the practical ethical question, what are we morally obligated to do? So that's just defining what we're talking about here. We're not talking about just ethics in general, we're talking about, like you said, meta-ethics or the things that lie underneath that. Before I go into you outlining what you're going to do with Bickwith's argument, is there anything else you want to say? Well, the Oslings are not philosophers. They're actually journalists, and they wrote a book on Mormonism. And it was kind of a broad overview of Mormonism, and they had several chapters on the status of Mormon scholarship. This is in the 90s, and so it's, it's a bit outdated. But they're approaching this from the perspective, and, and they don't see it. I mean, they're Catholics, and they don't even seem to be aware that there are huge problems with the kind of argument that they're taking for granted, and that is that Christianity easily grounds ethical obligations. But they do, I think, see a problem in Mormonism's asserting that there are ethical absolutes and that there exists a normative ethic. That is, we have moral obligations that are binding upon us. And the fact that there doesn't seem to be anything that grounds those kinds of things. And there's a very simple argument for that that Beckwith makes. So before we go into Beckwith's actual argument, you kind of give kind of an overview of what you're going to do. And this will make more sense as we go through it, but I'm just going to read it for now. So in response to those kind of quotes that I just read, you say, however, I believe that such judgments are fundamentally short-sighted with respect to the LDS view of the relation between ethics and God. The revelations of the Restoration point to a profound and thoroughly Christian view of ethical obligation that is not available to creedal Christians. And then next point is, in addition, I argue that creedal Christians cannot adopt the view that moral law is grounded in God's nature, given the constraints of an adequate moral theory, which we'll go into, like I said. I argue that Beckwith's position is necessarily false, because he takes all moral laws to be logically necessary. Moreover, I argue that the moral law cannot be the result of a rational mind if it is grounded in God's nature. I also argue that if God is necessarily good, as the argument implies, then God is an amoral being, 
in whom we cannot repose interpersonal trust. And just for those that don't know, amoral just means basically without morals, not like, not like a bad person is like, oh, he doesn't have any morals, so he's bad. Just like literally there are no distinctions between good and bad because there can't be. Anyway, um, finally, I argue that the view of God which Beckwith critiques is not necessarily the LDS position. So that's basically what we're going to go over now. So let's dive into the section of Beckwith's argument. So we're going to talk about what he is arguing, and I can do that with a couple quotes, and then I want you to explain more his, you know, what's behind what he's saying here. So he says, According to a prominent stream of LDS theology, God the Father is a resurrected, exalted man named Elohim, who was at one time not God. He was a mortal on another planet who, through obedience to the precepts of his God, eventually attained exaltation, or Godhood, through eternal progression. So you go on and say, Beckwith contends that given this view of God, it follows that the Mormon God is not the being in whom morality ultimately rests. For the moral law is something that he had to obey in order to achieve his divine status. And then I'm going to go further into his view and then juxtapose it with what he says his superior qualities are in his view. So he says, if God's decrees and acts are good, they are only good because they are consistent with an unchanging moral law that exists apart from him. This is critiquing the Mormon view. God's decrees are not good merely because they are God's. For God was himself once a man, through obedience to certain eternal principles and laws, eventually became God. And he says, you know, juxtapose that with his view, which is, in contrast, or this is you basically summarizing, says, in contrast, he argues that there is a neat explanation for the existence of the good and moral obligation in classical thought, he claims that God's commands are necessarily good and morally obligating because God's nature or, or character is such that it is eternally and perfectly good. That is, God's commands are good, not because God commands them, but because God is good. Thus, God is not subject to a moral order outside of himself, and neither are God's moral commands arbitrary. God's commands are issued by a perfect being who is the source of all goodness. And so he goes on to say, you know, both his view and the LDS view believe in moral absolutes. And if that's the case, then Mormons have a problem. So before we go on to what his five conditions of moral laws are, what other background could you give to his argument? Well, I think clearly his argument is both valid and sound to the extent that it must follow that if we adopt the view that God became God by following certain moral laws, that those moral laws are not dependent on him because he didn't have the status as God to ground them until after he had followed them to become God. It follows that God is not the source of what is good and what constitutes moral obligation the way it does in classical Christian thought. And so the argument to that extent is clearly sound. And there's a bit of confusion here because he grounds the good both in God's nature and in God's character, but they're very different realities about character and nature, as we'll see as we discuss this. But the bottom line is, is he's adopting a form of divine command theory in which matters are good. Now, he's, he's backing off a bit, and I just want to observe this. He's, he's already made kind of a sleight of hand move off of the divine command theory. The divine command theory asserts that something is good because God commands it. God does not command it because it's good. Okay, So let's take a basic action. We have an obligation to 
assist our neighbor in their time of need. This is because God has commanded us to assist our neighbors in time of need. And it's good because God has commanded it. God does not command it because assisting our neighbor is a good thing. Let me give another example to put this in stark relief. If God commanded that our moral duty consisted in torturing small children just for the fun of it, then it would be our moral obligation to do that, and it would be good simply because God commands it. There's no more content to what is good and what is not good than the fact that God commands it. And so that also is a critique of the divine command theory. Beckwith recognizes there's a problem with the standard divine command theory because it's absurd to believe that God could command that our entire moral duty consists of torturing small children just for the fun of it, and it would therefore be good. And so what he does is he backs off from that assertion and says, oh, no, divine command theory can be modified so that the good is grounded in God's being or in God's character. So if we ground it in God's nature, God just is good. It just is the way he is. We can't get him back of that. That just is his nature. It's just an eternal thing. We can't even question why that is. It just is. We can establish that through the ontological argument. And therefore, it's not the case that it's good just because God commands it. Rather, the good is defined by what God's good nature is, and goodness is defined by this eternal absolute that God just is. And so he's both responding to an implicit argument against the divine command theory by backing this up and saying that the good is grounded in God's nature instead of God's commands. And so I I just wanted to make this observation because he thinks that he solved this problem. I think, as we'll see as we discuss this, I don't believe that he has solved this problem. I think that the same problem remains. He's just engaged in a sleight of hand here in order to evade the problem. So then Beckwith outlines five conditions of moral laws, which he says have to be met to have an adequate moral theory. First one is moral laws are capable of being known otherwise we would have to be moral skeptics about our ability to conform to the moral law. And then second, moral laws are necessarily capable of taking the linguistic form of a command that conveys the content of the law to another mind. Third, moral laws have an incumbency or oughtness about them that obliges us to act in conformance with them, though we are free not to do so. Fourth, a moral law is capable of inducing feelings of guilt in us when we violate it, although we can resist those feelings. Fifth, moral laws are not physical in the sense that they are material or extended realities. They are purely ideal realities. And then he goes on to try to argue that the LDS view is incapable of giving an adequate account that meets those five criteria. And you say it doesn't fit well with Platonism or the philosophy that that they're are simply ideal moral absolutes. And so, again, I didn't read the article that he wrote, so what do you mean? Beckwith argues that we have these constraints on any moral theory, and he gives these five constraints. And then he says, well, Platonism really doesn't... LDS could adopt a Platonistic view, but Platonism isn't adequate because it gives us no basis for really knowing what our moral obligation is. There's no basis for believing that there is this kind of incumbency that comes with these ideal absolutes. So he's arguing that Platonism isn't adequate, so Mormons can't adopt it. Also, he goes over other ethical theories that he thinks Mormons could adopt, and he shoots those down and says, well, there may be other ethical theories they may want to adopt, like a Rawlsian social contract theory. He then looks at that and rejects it for good and sufficient reasons, saying that this theory is also not adequate. He then looks at Aristotle's theory of final causes and suggests that Mormons can't adopt it, but even if they could, it's not an adequate theory of ethics, and it's not clear what other options Mormons would have besides Platonism 
Rawlsian contract theory and Aristotle's theory. Given that Mormons can't adopt these three theories and they're morally inadequate as or meta-ethically inadequate anyway, it looks like there's nothing that Mormons could adopt that would be an adequate theory of ethics. So that's his basic argument. All right, great. And then, yeah, Jacob's going to take us through the response of your the section titled, Why Beckwith's Argument is Necessarily Unsound. Okay, yeah, so Beckwith maintains also that there's an unchanging moral law that is true in every possible world. And he says, if God exists in every possible world, it means that no matter how we conceive things, it is impossible to consistently think of any way the world could possibly be without including God. However, the latter portion is dubious at best. Why would that part be dubious? I have a, an article that's online where I address this, but in order for this assertion to be true, it has to be the case that there is a sound ontological argument for God's existence. But there isn't a sound ontological argument for God's existence. The ontological argument is simply the argument that whatever that God is, whatever it's better to be than not to be, it's better to exist than not to exist, therefore God exists. This is the possible world's kind of argument for the ontological conclusion that God exists, and that is, if something exists in every possible world, then in possible world semantics, it exists of logical necessity. So it's just another way of saying that there's some kind of sound ontological argument. Now, Beckwith doesn't give this ontological argument. He assumes it and begs the question grandly in doing so. But I argue that, in fact, there can't be a sound ontological argument. And I give a counter-argument, which explains why that is. And here is the argument. There are possible worlds in which the amount of evil vastly outweighs the amount of good. However, a world where there are vast amounts of evil you know, that outweigh any good that would exist in those worlds is inconsistent with God's existence, and therefore God doesn't exist in those possible worlds. It's impossible to respond to this argument, well, you know, you've assumed something here, and that is that there are, in fact, where it's logically possible there's much greater amounts of evil than there are amounts of good. Clearly, such a thing is conceivable, and it's easy to see why it's logically possible. A number of Christians beg the question, Beckwith is not in this argument, that there's a position known as theological activism in which the logical space of propositions and, and what can possibly be is also defined by God himself. And so God's existence is prior even to the meaning of what it means to say that something is logically consistent or logically possible. But for a lot of reasons, that position is logically circular. It's not a sound position to take. And so I think that this is a counterexample to the existence of a God that exists in every possible world, because the worlds that are logically possible, where vast amounts of evil outweigh the good, are not consistent with God's existence, and therefore in those possible worlds, God does not exist. It follows that God does not exist in every possible world. That's the first argument. There's a second argument for that conclusion as well. Right, before you, you go on to that, in this first part of the argument, you said that there might be vast amounts of evils. In the book, you say unjustified evils. Is that a needed qualifier there, or is it, I mean, are it, there it evils is. that can yeah. be justified? Of course there are evils that can be justified. I assume that you have given your children vaccination shots, even though they hurt them. It's an evil that they underwent pain to receive the shots, but that evil is outweighed by the greater good of the beneficent effects of the vaccination. Therefore, the evil is justified. That is, the pain of the shot is justified by the good effects of the vaccination. So it's important to say that there are evils that are unjustified, not just that there are evils. And maybe this is getting a little bit too much into it. So 
is it safe to say that any unjustified pain would be evil? Yeah, if there is unjustified pain, then God doesn't exist, because that means that there are evils that don't have a justification. And at least in the standard problem of evil, that would be inconsistent with a being who is all good and omnipotent and omniscient. So in those views, there are justifying goods for every evil that exists. And we won't dive too much into that. I just noticed that you had that qualifier there and wanted to point out that that is a needed qualifier. These are vast amounts of unjustified evils for God to not exist in that world. Anyway, on to the second argument. Well, what I argue is that there's a notion of good that can exist independently of God. So take this proposition. If God did not exist, no one could be morally good or bad. That just seems to be patently false. We could still be good or bad even if God didn't exist. Or if God were not loving and just, no one could be morally good or bad. That just doesn't follow. We can still be good and bad even if God doesn't exist. And so there are these worlds in which God does not exist, but good and evil still exist because they exist independently of God. And so it's just nonsense that no one could be good if God didn't exist. So it seems to me that it can't be an analytic truth. Analytic truth is one of the logically necessary truth, like all bachelors are unmarried, okay? (laughs) It's an analytic truth. It also follows that, that all married guys are not bachelors. It's an analytic truth that's known to be true by virtue of the meaning of the words. In this case, we know that torturing a baby is not acceptable because torture means an unjustified evil. So if we have the judgment that there is such a thing as torture, then there are unjustified evils. And it follows that at least in those worlds where there are unjustified evils, and God is as Beckwith has described him, that God doesn't exist in those worlds. In any event, it seems very clear that there can be moral goods even if God doesn't exist because they can exist independently of him. At least it's logically possible that's the case. And therefore, the assumptions made by Beckwith about God existing in all possible worlds being the definition of good and evil in all possible worlds is a fallacious argument. Okay. And also, just want to point out something else. Uh, and you pretty much just said this, but shortly said, logically necessary truths are logically prior to God's existence, and this cannot depend on God. And Beckwith's argument makes no sense if God can't exist in a certain world. Right. If there are assertions about what is right and wrong or good and evil that exist because they are logically necessary, then they don't depend on God for their existence. They depend on the nature of logic for their existence, and therefore there are truths about morality that are not dependent on God, and the modified divine command theory that he adopts is therefore fallacious. All right. Uh, That moves us on to the next section here of, Are Moral Laws Logically Dependent on God's Nature? And we'll turn back to Corey for that. Okay, so in the beginning of this section, you outline some of your objections to Beckwith's view, and you you say that most of your objections are kind of based on the classic dilemma known as Euthyphro's Dilemma, which is from Plato. And it's just what we discussed before, which is, is something good because God commands it, or does God command it because it's good? And to take the first horn of the dilemma, you say, is to adopt a view that moral laws are arbitrary meaning they are whatever God says. It doesn't really, there are no actual moral laws, it's just whatever God says. Because God could then command us to kill innocent children just for the fun of the act, and it would be our duty because it's good. On the other hand, if we assert that God commands an act because it is good, then we acknowledge that there are moral standards independent of God's command by which we judge the goodness of God's command. So Beckwith says to that, like you said, he, he doesn't like the divine command theory or the just because God says it, it's good. 
So he says, God's commands are good, not because God commands them, but because God is good. So he's saying God is the source of goodness. God is literally where all good comes from, and there couldn't be any good without him. And so, therefore, by definition, he has a nature of goodness. And if your nature precedes your will, or God's will, then he is just inherently good, and he cannot do wrong. So you then point out, I think you're referring back to the article you responded to him in. You said, first, I argued that it makes God's commands arbitrary. If God's nature is logically prior to God's will, then God is stuck with whatever his nature happens to dictate. And in this sense, moral values are clearly arbitrary. So he thinks he solved something, but you point out, well, then who determines what God's nature is that is the thing determining God's will, you know? Before we move on, what is there anything you want to say about that? Yeah, what we're referring to is an earlier exchange. Beckwith had published an article in a philosophical journal, and I responded to that article. And so in his book, he's now responding to my response to him. And his response is essentially, well, what you seem to have been saying in your response to me is that God's nature is impersonal, undirected force to which God's will is subject. And then Beckwith drew the conclusion, I'm going to quote him, quote, thus if God commands don't torture babies for fun because he wills it in every possible world, torturing babies for fun is wrong. And that principle is the result of a good nature that God's command is arbitrary because he has no control over what his nature is, and this nature apparently directs his will. And so in this article in the book, I then respond to his response to me. So let me outline the arguments. So here's what happens. Beckwith wrote an article in a philosophical journal in which he argued that the divine command theory is essentially correct, except for I'm going to back it off and say that what makes God's commands good and what makes God good is not the fact that he commands something, but the fact that his nature is good. I then respond to that and say, well, God's nature isn't the result of a free choice, and it's not the result of having thought about it. So it's not rational in any sense. It is just arbitrary. It's just a given. Just assert given in reality, there's no way to assert, well, it just happens to be the case that it's good, but it's just arbitrary. It just is given somehow in God's existence. And so in the book that we're, you know, I was responding to, The New Mormon Challenge, he responded to my response to him. And his response is essentially, well, you're saying that God's nature is arbitrary because it's not subject to God's will, but that won't work because if God's nature is the same in every possible world, then it's logically necessary. And what is logically necessary has to be both rational and non-arbitrary. So your argument can't be good. So that's the status of the argument up to the point that I respond in my second volume. And so Beckwith basically says that, like, I'm guessing that Osler would reject this view. And then you say that the view that moral goodness is a constituent of God's nature. And so you say, he's correct that I would reject that view because I accept, as does Beckwith himself, that the moral law arises only in the context of interpersonal relations. So I like that there, and they have no grounding other than unless there is some sort of relationship or in-between persons. Anyway, if the moral law is located in God's nature, then it does not arise solely in the context of interpersonal relations. God's nature obtains prior to any interpersonal relations in Beckwith's view of God. I also accept Beckwith's suggestion that the moral law requires a personal mind to give it existence and content. Yet, if the moral law is located in God's nature, 
then it cannot be the result of a rational mind, because God's nature is logically prior to any rational thought God may think. And you say, this basically moves us a step back into Euthyphro's dilemma. So instead of saying, is God's command good because God commanded it, or because it was good to begin with, you say that moves us kind of back, and now it just asks a question similar, saying, if God is good by nature, then he has properties of goodness in every possible world in which he exists. Thus, in every possible world in which he is located, God has properties such as being perfectly benevolent, loving, kind, etc. But if we identify moral goodness with God's nature, as Beckwith does, then we must ask, is God good because he has these properties, or are these properties good because they are God? As I asserted earlier, all Beckwith has done is move the youthful problem back one step instead of grounding it in God's commands and God's desires or his subsequent will. He just grounds it in God's logically necessary nature. But then that just moves the youth for all question back to, well, okay, we're now going to deal with the properties that God has. Are the properties he has good because he has them, or are they good because these things are judged by some other standard? So yeah, it's basically, is, are these things good in of themselves, or are they just good because they have a certain owner, or the, the qualities, you know, just because they're gods? And so you then point out, you say, well, Beckwith can respond to my arbitrariness objection only by impaling himself on the other horn of Euthyphro's dilemma. Because he doesn't want to say that moral laws are independent of God. So his only other option, if the moral law is not arbitrary, then there must be a moral standard independent of God's nature. In this case, the moral standards are established by the meaning of the words used and not by God's nature. And so this kind of goes back to what we said, like when you say torturing a baby is bad. Well, that's implied because torture implies basically an act that is immoral. Like That's in the definition of torture. There's no understanding of torture that is like, oh yeah, that's a good thing. Right. So what Beckwith had argued essentially was that what makes the fact that the torturing a baby is bad is that it's inconsistent with God's loving nature. And I point out, no, we know that torturing a baby is bad because torture inherently is a judgment that this is not an acceptable thing to do. So what we're doing with this move to move the grounding of moral obligation and good and evil in God's nature is simply to move back the question one step. And when we look at that step, what we find out is that it's still arbitrary because what we're asserting is that the properties themselves are good because of the nature of the properties, not because they're owned by God. The mere fact that a property is owned by God wouldn't make it good. It doesn't follow from the assertion this is a property of God that therefore this property is necessarily good. What we have to do is assess the nature of the property that God has to determine whether it's good. And what I've asserted is that every time Beckwith gives us something that he takes to be an established moral good based upon God's nature, I point out and say, no, we know it's good not because of God's nature, but because of the nature of the property itself. So his argument won't hold up. All right, and then you dive into that more into the next section, which Jake will take this one. It asks, is God a morally perfect being? So Beckwith also seeks to defend his view of God against the argument that if God is perfectly good by nature rather than by choice, then God is an amoral being. The argument is essentially that if God is perfectly good by nature, then he is not a moral agent because a being who must, of logical necessity, do what is good is not free to do what is wrong and therefore is not free in a morally significant sense. So given the choice between moral freedom and perfect goodness, Beck argues that we should give up moral good. What Beckwith is asserting here is 
We have a choice here because God can't both be perfectly good, that is, good by definition, and also morally free. A morally free being can either do good or evil, but if God is good by definition, it's logically impossible for him to do anything evil. Therefore, he doesn't have any ethical content to his nature, doesn't have any ethical content to the kind of being that he is at all. This is a moral fact about him because moral beings are free beings who can make free choices. It's just a part of the nature of morality that we have to be free in order to have moral obligations. Beckwith accepts that, and so what we're looking at is this dilemma, and Beckwith is saying, given the choice between perfect goodness and free will in God that could make him a moral being, we should give up the notion that God has morally significant free will and that God could have a moral nature and maintain that God is perfectly good. The problem is is the very content of the word good then evaporates. What does it mean to say something is good when it doesn't have any moral content? Because it's amoral without the basis for in goodness in the first place grounded in free will. So the very notion of goodness just doesn't have any real content. It's an empty placeholder. And instead of saying God is good, we're saying God is X and saying nothing more than that. But there is a price to be paid, and, and Beckwith points this out, and that is, First of all, it's impossible world semantics. If something is necessarily true, it's true in every possible world. So if God is perfectly good in every possible world, God is perfectly good. But if God is not perfectly good, then there is some possible world that's imaginable in which God does evil. And Beckwith asked the question, well, how do you know that's not the actual world? That's a pretty high price to pay because now we have a God who could do something evil. And Beckwith points out that if God really could do evil, then such thoughts are very uncomfortable, because we must admit the real possibility that he may well do evil. So he's presenting a stark choice here, but this is a choice that the theists have to make between perfect goodness and a morally free, morally significant God. And you go on to say that you agree that if God is free in any morally significant sense, then it cannot be logically impossible that God would do evil. But what you deny is the logical possibility of God's doing something evil as a reason for failing to trust or have faith in God. There's a much, much more important point here, and that is that I claim something profoundly more important about the nature of freedom, and that is that if God must be perfectly good, then we can't have interpersonal trust in him. I claim that it is impossible to repose trust in a perfectly good being. In the absence of the genuine ability to go wrong, we cannot genuinely trust or have faith in God in any significant sense. Trust entails the possibility that the person trusted may not do what we trust them to do. And so this very basis of all interpersonal relationships, interpersonal trust, is given up if we adopt the view that God is perfectly good. I give an analogy. In fact, I give a couple of analogies here. Let's say I'm in your house. And you have your guns in a safe, and the safe is something I can't break into, and I don't know the combination. Can it be said under such circumstances that you're trusting me not to go get the gun and shoot you? The answer is, of course not. The reason you've got them in a safe in the first place is that you don't trust me. (laughs) The second is, let's say that every person who's married trusts their spouse to be faithful. Unless, you know, they're crazy and have an open relationship, in which case they really don't have anything that relates to a relationship like marriage in the first place. And so when I trust my spouse to be faithful, I have this kind of interpersonal trust that is very valuable. It's one of the most valuable things about interpersonal relationships, maybe the most valuable component of or element of interpersonal relationships. 
Well, let's say that my wife, uh, I'm married, and she just happens to be a spirit without a body, and it's impossible, logically impossible for her to be unfaithful, uh, at least in the sense of committing adultery. Could it be said that I trust this spirit wife to be faithful to me? And the answer is, of course not. It's impossible for her to be unfaithful. I don't trust her at all. I don't need to trust her. It's impossible for me to even conceive what I would be trusting her to do. What this points out is when we trust somebody, implicit and entailed in the very notion of trust itself is the possibility that what we trust a person to do, they have the capacity to not do. Or if we trust them to refrain from doing something, then they have the capacity to do it. They simply have chosen freely to not do it. This is something that's bedrock in the nature of our relationships, this free choice that we have, but we nevertheless trust that the person will freely choose to be faithful to us. It's the same kind of faithfulness that is talked about throughout all of the scriptural record as the nature of the relationship between Israel and God or between Christians and God. It is the bedrock. In fact, the word for trust in both Greek and Hebrew is the same as the word for faith. When it says that we have faith in God, what we're saying is we trust God. They're the same term. And so to have faith in God, it's impossible to have faith in God if God is perfectly good because we don't trust God then. What we trust are our definitions of perfect goodness. We trust logical necessities, not person in an interpersonal relationship. And so the price to pay for a perfectly good being is impossibly high. What I'm pointing out to Beckwith is, you're right, there's a price to be paid for adopting the view that God is not perfectly good. That's the possibility that God could go wrong. But what I point out is the value of the possibility that can go wrong because it means we can actually have interpersonal trust in God. We can have faith in God. No Christian, no Jew, and no Muslim could give up the view of having faith in God. It's just an impossibly high price to pay. So if we have the choice between preferring a God who's perfectly good and a God who we trust to be good, even though he's not good of logical necessity, we should always choose interpersonal trust in God who is not an amoral being, but is a being that we praise and adore precisely because he could do wrong, but freely chooses not to do so. That's what we admire. That's what we adore. We don't adore God because it's impossible for him to do wrong because he's perfectly good by definition. No, we have interpersonal trust in him. And and because we trust him and because he has been worthy of our trust in every single instance in which we've trusted him, what we have is such a valuable facet to our relationship that it's something that is the very bedrock of Christian faith in the first place. So I argue that this notion that we ought to adopt the view that God is perfectly good because of somehow a superior view, when we just look at it, the entire faith falls apart, and everything that we value most has to be given up. So I suggest that we not do it. And you have a good description here where you put that our trust in God arises from a knowing that surpasses mere excellence in law, which involves our entire being in the most profound interpersonal sense possible. His light and truth shine in our hearts at our very core. If we can ever truly trust God, then we must know him in the intimacy of our hearts where he dwells in us. We know of his love because it is made manifest to us at the core of our being. It is logically possible that such a being could do something wrong, but in the presence of his love, trust in him is the only meaningful response. I mean, that that just underlies what I've said. I also want to quote something that I said so well, I just want to quote it again. What is wonderful in our relationship, and I'm talking about the relationship I have with my wife, 
is that she's free to choose to end the relationship at any time, but freely chooses to love me and remain faithful to me. Such freely given love is more valuable to me than any love that would be impossible for her to refrain from giving. It means that her love for me is a choice, an expression of who she is and what she chooses to give. It's the same with God. What's so wonderful in our relationship with God is that he could freely choose to reject us. He could freely choose to do something evil. But in every instance, he freely chooses to love us with everything that we are and everything that he is. Look at it this way. If we believe that God loved us only because he had to, I think we would have every reason to question whether or not it's truly love at all. And if God has to be loving because his nature is perfectly good, then we've lost the very value of love in the first place because love is something that must be, by its very nature, freely chosen. No Christian can give up the idea that God is loving. Well, how wonderful is it to know that we trust God to be loving and what we adore about him is that he's free to not be loving, but he chooses to be loving in every instant of our lives. This is something that is, again, is, is just so wonderful that I couldn't outline and put this in broad relief enough to say, this is an amazing thing. God's free to choose not to love us, but he does it anyway. With that, we'll go ahead. We'll move forward to Beckwith's equivocation in his use of God, because he picks up a couple of the Mormon views of God, and then he's like, well, this is the one I think most of them believe in, and then he kind of attacks that one. But we'll go ahead and have Corey lead on that one. Okay. Again, equivocation is just using a term when and meaning something different than the other person would understand. Or using a term and using it in different senses when you use it. So if I say, wow, that person's really high, and I mean he's up on a ladder, and then I say, yeah, that person's really high, and I mean that he's had four joints of marijuana. The word high here is equivocal because I'm assigning to it a very different meaning. Exactly. All right. So he kind of points out some different views of Mormonism. We've talked about his kind of caricature view in general that, number one, there's a plurality of finite gods, which is probably what the majority of Mormons actually do believe, a certain version of at least. And then he points out there's a second one, which is what he calls monarcho-theism, which is kind of a view that holds that there is one eternally existing, though finite God, who is above all of the other gods. Yeah, what he does is he defines two views. One is monarcho-theism, where there's a God who's above all other gods, even though he's still finite and limited, and the view that there's this endless eternal sequence of gods, if you will, an infinity of gods, one above another. And so you have this endless regress of gods. And one view I would submit was probably Brigham Young's view, that is, this endless regress of gods view. And monarcho-theism seems to be more consistent with Joseph Smith's view. Okay. And then you kind of point out something that is important to this whole argument, I think. You say, let me make it clear that, in my opinion, we ought not to consider God to be the only ground of moral laws and obligations, because that view is unacceptable. So you don't really go into why it's unacceptable, but I agree. But you're saying, you know, his whole argument is that God is supposed to be the source of moral laws, and there is no goodness without God, and a lot of people argue that, and it leaves atheists feeling mad and stuff. They're like, well, I can be perfectly moral, and I don't believe in God, so explain that. Anyway, what do you mean by that when you say it? Well, first of all, when we're talking about whether or not we require God in order to be good, I think it's clear that there are people who are very good who do not believe in God. It's not the case that atheists are all immoral people. It's just a given fact. There's also the fact that 
God may be a source of moral obligation, but not the sole source of moral obligation. Let me explain. When our parents ask us to do things and we're young, we have an obligation in a sense because of all they do for us and the relationship that we have with them to obey them. And so they can kind of, this is a a very finite comparison to what God does, but they can lay obligations uh, on us to do things just because they say to do them, go mow the lawn, brush your teeth, whatever, (laughs) okay? But God can give us commands and they become incumbent on us because of the trust and love that we have for God and how much we not merely respect God, but adore him. In other words, God is the kind of being that even though he's not the source of moral obligation, when he asks us to do something, it would be stupid because if we trust him to always act in our own best interest, we believe that he has vastly more knowledge than we have and that he's put together a plan for us to lead us to happiness. And God asks us to do something. It would be just passingly stupid to say, oh, I know you're looking out for my best interest and you know a heck of a lot more than I do, but you know what? I'm hellbent on self-destruction, so I'm just not going to listen. God can lay moral obligations on us, even though he's not logically the source of all moral obligation because of this nature of the interpersonal relationships that we have with him. And that's the point that I wanted to make. So let's take his view that you've got the notion that, look, God became God because he followed the rules that were set up by somebody else in order to become God. Or there just happens to be this requirements, you know, there are these requirements just built into reality that you have to follow in order to be a God. And what I point out is even if we accept that view of God, that is something more consistent with the view of an eternal regression of gods, still that view wouldn't tell that there has always been either gods prior to God or an eternal council of gods. And this eternal council of gods can be the basis for moral laws and obligations in the sense that there's always been an eternal chain of gods who act as one council of gods. And so this eternal council of gods can eternally function as an ultimate authority, moral and otherwise. This, though the fathers have not always been God on this view, there have always been gods who act as one deity to govern the universe. And in this sense, the divine goodness that exists in the entire council of gods and all the gods put together could be the basis for moral obligation. Or if we say that there are just these requirements to be divine that are built into reality, let's say that in order to be divine, it requires that there, there be this group of very loving people. Well, it would seem that the conditions of divinity themselves that are written into reality would somehow be a basis for moral obligation. So even if we accept a view, which I reject, that there's this eternal regression of gods, there may be a basis for asserting that there is a grounding of moral obligation. And while I have my reservations about making that assertion, I don't want to write that view off and say that, well, we have to reject that view because it isn't an adequate ground of moral obligation or meta-ethics. I want to defend that view, even though I don't adopt it, and say, I still think that it may function as a ground of moral obligation. And so that's, you know, I'm defending a view within Mormonism that many people hold that I don't. Okay. And on that note, this is actually probably more related to your actual view, but just kind of the view that we've been talking about in general. So do you think it could kind of be more along the lines of that divinity or godhood is kind of this relationship of divine beings? Well, that's exactly what I assert, actually, because, it's, you know, when we get into it next week, you'll see that what I adopt is known as an agape theory of ethics that is grounded in the interpersonal nature of loving relationships. Okay, so you might get into it. That's, that was kind of my question. Like, so do you think that it is kind of more like a relationship, whereas, like, there's moral laws, true, but then there's kind of 
laws of just being in relationship in general that the person if you you know if you want to be in relationship with someone then they can define that relationship do you think there's anything related to defining relationships with god that relates to morality relationships require two things they require free dynamic individuals who continue to choose to be in relationship and who change in, in every moment so there's this ongoing progression beginning becoming type of relationship. It's more like process thought. But there's also kind of a givenness about what love is. And so there's also a being nature of moral obligation. And both are present in an agape ethic that I develop. And so, you know, as we develop this next week, what we'll be looking at is that it is the very nature of love itself and what is required to be in a loving relationship with dynamic free persons that gives rise to what we're morally obligated to do in relationship with each other. And so I suggest that the theory that I'm giving actually is the kind of thought and theory of ethics that exists in Mormon scripture and that was, I think, more or less assumed by Joseph Smith. Though Joseph Smith probably had a lot of different, the kernels of a lot of different ethical theories in his in his various sayings, but still, I think there's a very consistent view within the Mormon scriptures that adopts an agape theory of ethics. All right, great. Yeah, we'll develop that next time. But as far as your conversation and arguments with Mr. Francis Beckwith here, is there anything else that you want to say before we end? Yeah, I mean, I don't want to give the notion that Dr. Beckwith is just somehow, you know, just doesn't get it. He's a very bright guy, and he's a worthy interlocutor, and I have a good deal of respect for him, and I want that to be emphasized as we conclude here. And I'm grateful for the thought that he spurred in me, that he caused me, in a sense, to have to respond to his very well-thought-out arguments. And so he gave me the opportunity to interact in a way that is the way that I think scholars interact with each other, with respect, responding to arguments and not to persons through ad hominem arguments, and having a conversation at a very high level of philosophical engagement, being fully informed of the various philosophical issues, the various philosophical options, and having a good faith discussion of people who have very different views of who and what God is and what Christianity stands for, but still coming away having a genuine love and respect for each other at the end. And I want to emphasize that. All right, great. No, yeah, that's definitely a good model for that because, yeah, like, as you see with, like, online discussions and Facebook, a lot of people don't quite get how to do that. <laughs> yeah, well, for a lot of people who have the attention span of a tweet, it's very difficult to engage in this kind of discussion. So I apologize if my arguments and counter-arguments and, and engagement appear to be long-winded or, or require a lot of attention for a long period of time. That's the way real argumentation actually is. Arguments are not the length of a tweet. They can't be dealt with responsibly on Facebook. And so this is really the way that philosophical argumentation, if it's responsible, must be done. All right, great. And with that, I think we can close this out. Thank you for joining us. To support the podcast, donate at exploringmormonthought.com. Follow us on facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought.com.